Okay, so it's 11 o'clock and I'm gonna get started. We're in the middle of chapter 26. For anybody who printed out the booklet from Chabad.org, you don't have to have the booklet printed out, but if you do have it printed out, it's on page three from Tanya chapter 26. So to get where we were up to last time, last time we said to win over the evil inclination, you're gonna have to have alacrity. Alacrity is when you have a beat in your step and joy in your gait and you have energy in the things that you do. Alacrity is very, very important because in this way you are enabled to win over the evil within you. Where does alacrity come from? It comes from joy. Joy is welcome. Joy is a necessity. If you want to win the fight, you're going to have to be joyous. What's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of alacrity? The opposite of alacrity is depression. The opposite of alacrity is a stuffed up heart. What's a stuffed up heart? A stuffed up heart is a complacent heart. It's a heart that is smug. It's a heart that does not, is immune to messages. You can, it's like you're talking to the wall. And complacency happens because a person is just going through life without ever having experienced anything. But most importantly, we were looking at sadness and sadness is toxic. Sadness is poison. Sadness is to be avoided at all costs. And we did speak about how once in a while you're supposed to have sadness and that's going to be discussed more fully at the end of the chapter. But the only reason why to use sadness, the only reason why to employ this powerful drug is so that you could be happy. So sadness is toxic. Sadness is to be avoided at all costs. Sadness is poison. You need to stay away from sadness. Once in a while, you use sadness, and the only reason why you would use sadness is so that you can feel joy. Okay? Now, we got up to... Uh, one more thing I want to speak about, and that is last week at class, for anybody who didn't hear this, this was an important question that came up at class, and I feel like it's worthwhile to repeat this again. Last week at class, somebody asked, isn't it toxic to avoid your feelings? What if you're really feeling sad? Isn't it toxic to say smile even though you're sad? And the answer is, no, we're not saying be in denial. We're not saying when a feeling pops up, don't admit that you're feeling that way. What we're, say- <laughs> what we're saying is that true, admit that you have this feeling. Notice that the feeling came. Admit it. Say, okay, I see that you're there, but I'm not going to let you control me. I will control the situation. Yes, there is a time to attend to this feeling, but the answer is no, not now. At the proper time, I will allow you in. And right now, I'm in charge and I'm not going to let you take over my life and make me sad. So sadness is, so happiness is a must. And this was um, a logical explanation. Why do you have to be happy? Because when people are wrestling and one of them, even if one of them is stronger than the other, the stronger guy will not be able to win if he's lazy or depressed. So just logically speaking, you need to be happy so that you can win. Now we're gonna look at proof text from the Torah and see, Adi is here, hi, Karen, hi. (laughs) Now we're gonna look at proof texts from the Torah 
and we're going to see how the Torah clearly spells it out. You need to be happy. So we're in the middle of page three. Umikra male diber hakasov, tahas asher le avadata es hashem alekaha basimhavagaimer, venida la col perish haariza al pasakzef. Furthermore, the verse states explicitly because you did not serve God your Lord with joy, therefore you will serve your enemies. And everyone is familiar with the explanation of the arizal on this verse. So the Torah, in warning the Jewish people to keep Hashem's laws, the Torah says, Tachas asher lai avarata es Hashem alekecha besimcha uvetov levav meirav kol. Because you did not serve Hashem your God with joy and with gladness of heart out of an abundance of everything. So, simply speaking, in a plain way of reading the verse, this means that the Jewish people were blessed with everything. They had abundance. They were in a state of joy. They had everything they needed. And even though they had everything they needed, they didn't serve Hashem. They were in a situation of joy. They were in a situation of happiness. They were in a situation of abundance. And even though they were in such a good, comfortable situation, they were not serving Hashem with joy. Therefore, the punishment will be that they will serve their enemies out of want and out of lack and out of suffering. That is the warning and that is the simple explanation. However, if you look at Maimonides in the Rambam, in Hilchas Lulav, the laws of Lulav, he says that a person should experience joy when they do a mitzvah. They should experience joy when serving Hashem. And a person who does not experience joy in serving Hashem deserves to be punished. And then he brings this verse from the Torah. Since you did not serve Hashem your God with joy. So not you did not serve Hashem your God when you were in a state of joy, when you were in condition of joy, but you did not serve Hashem your God with joy. You weren't joyous when you served Hashem. And the Rebbe explains the reason. Why would somebody be, deserve to be punished? Because they were not joyous. They weren't happy when they performed a mitzvah. And that is because that's an act of rebellion. Hashem gives us the opportunity to serve Him, to connect with Him. What greater joy is that? Could you believe it? Us nothingnesses, us limited, puny people, finite creatures, and Hashem, the infinite, greater than great, more than we can imagine, gives us a chance for relationship he says, do this mitzvah, this act of connection and connect with me. And then a person is sad when they're connecting with Hashem. What a great act of rebellion. That alone deserves to be punished. So that is the reason why a person should be joyous when they have a mitzvah. They have the opportunity to have a relationship with Hashem. But the Arizal says something even further than this. So we're going to look inside the text and see how the Arizal takes it one step further. The verse reads, because you did not serve God your Lord with joy and gladness of heart from an abundance of everything good. The simple meaning is, when you had an abundance of everything, you did not serve God with joy. This meaning is borne out by the context following the verse. You will serve your enemies in hunger, thirst, and nakedness in want of everything. But the Arizal interprets it thus. You did not serve God with a joy greater than caused by an abundance of everything. So we have three readings here. We have the plain reading. You did not serve God, your Lord, when you had joy, when you had abundance, when you had everything you needed. Then we have the reading of Maimonides, the Rambam. You did not serve God with joy. 
But then we have the reading of the Arizal, the great mystic and Kabbalist from Tzvat. And he said that you did not serve God with joy more than you would have joy when you had an abundance of everything. Imagine you won the $500 million lottery. How happy you would be? You should be happier still to serve Hashem. And the Arizal is one to talk because he was extremely joyous in performing a mitzvah. And it is stated in different places that the way he merited such great revelation is because of the joy he had in a mitzvah. So I'm going to sum up what we said until now and we're going to move to the next section. We said that a person must be happy when they serve Hashem. This is what gives them the ability to win over the evil within them. And true, from Mishle we learned that from sadness comes profit. This is only that sadness itself has no virtue. But from sadness there will be a profit. We discussed this last week and this will be discussed more fully at the end of class. And... Not only is a person supposed to be joyous when they serve Hashem, but look at the proof text that we have. The proof text is the Torah tells us the reason that a person was going to be punished is because they did not serve Hashem with joy. And looking at the Arizal's interpretation, not just a regular joy, more joy than if they would have if they had an abundance of everything. Okay, it sounds really good, but there are things that cause people sadness. Generally speaking, sadness will be caused by two things either from material problems or from spiritual problems. So the first thing that we're going to be looking at is sadness that comes from material problems and how to handle that. Sound advice has been offered by our sages on cleansing one's heart of all sadness and any trace of worry about mundane matters. Even a sadness or worry caused by the lack of such essentials as children, health, or livelihood. Okay, so the altar was saying, hey, advice has already been given. You want to deal with material problems? You're getting issues because of physical things? Worldly matters are tugging at your heart? There is sound advice already offered by our sages. And he's telling you you're going to clear your heart of any, and he uses the words, all sadness and any trace of worry. Sadness is from a current situation, from a past situation. Worry is worry that's grabbing your heart, fearing about the future. He's telling you this advice is going to help you clear your heart of all of this. Sadness about the present, sadness about the past, worry about the future. Now, The things that he is telling you, you can clear your heart from worry on, are such essential things. He's not saying frivolous things. He's not saying luxuries. A person doesn't need special advice to figure out how to get rid of sadness from lack of luxuries. They can just say, hey, luxuries a person can do without. But look at what he's talking about here. He's saying, bane chaye umezaine. This means children, life, and sustenance. Children, life, and sustenance are so vital to the person they make up who the person is themselves in kabbalistic writings these three are also alluded to in the words it says you should love hashem with all your heart with all your soul with all your might these three terms these are the ones that speak about the person themselves who they are their essence what their life depends on this is their heart their soul and their might you know what the heart is the heart is a wife and children a person's heart is bound to his family and they become his heart themselves. 
with all your soul, this is your life. With all your might, this is your sustenance. So we're talking about a person who has worried from the basics. And still our sages gave advice on how to deal with this. You know what our sages said? Our sages said, A person is obligated to, to make a blessing over misfortune the same way that he makes a blessing over good fortune. This sounds really, really wild. And let's look at what the text says over here. Muda'as zais lakail. Maimer razal. Kashem shemavarich al hatayva chulay. The advice is contained in the well-known saying of our sages. Just as one recites a blessing for his good fortune, blessed are you, God, who is good and does good, so must he also recite a blessing for misfortune. And it goes even further. Upirshu begamara. The Gemara explains that this does not mean that he recites the same blessing, for the blessing in a case of misfortune, God forbid, is blessed is God the true judge. Rather, the implication is that one should accept misfortune with joy, like a joy in the visible and obvious good. So you would read the, the words of the sages, and a person might think that they should say the very same formula, the same exact blessing for good, as for misfortune, and that's not true. There's two different blessings. When a person experiences good fortune, they make the blessing They bless God who is good and who does good. God forbid a person experiences misfortune, a calamity, they make a different blessing, and that is Diane Ha'emes, the true judge. So then what do they mean? What do our sages mean when they say that a person should bless over the good, as, as over misfortune as he does over good fortune? That he should accept it with the same level of joy. It's wild. Isn't it wild? It's, it, just, it just blows the mind, right? And for this reason, not everybody interprets this literally. Rashi explains that a person should accept it with a complete mind and a willing soul. He doesn't interpret it as actual joy. He says that just like a person makes a blessing over joyous occasion, over good news, over good fortune, with a complete mind and a willing soul, so too, God forbid, he's visited by misfortune or calamity. When he makes that blessing, he should make the blessing with the same amount of complete mind and a willing soul. And the Bach, a commentary on Jewish law, writes that it is impossible for a person to accept calamity the same way he accepts good fortune. And it doesn't mean joy. It means that a person should have, again, a complete mind and a willing soul. And in Jewish law, in Shulchan Aruch, it is written that when a person makes this blessing, he makes it, again, with a complete mind and a willing soul. But if you look at the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah, the Rambam says that he should conquer his emotions and he should have joy. And when he makes that blessing, he should appear to others the same way that somebody would appear if he was making the blessing on good news. Could you believe it? And that's exactly... I'm, I'm going to get to your question in a second, Catherine. And that's exactly the same interpretation that the Alter Rebbe gives here. The Alter Rebbe says that a person should have complete joy. And Catherine is asking a question. And um, this sounds really, could you believe it? A person wins the $500 million lottery. They make the blessing, God forbid they lose their fortune. 
they make blessed is the true judge, and they should make it with the same level of joy. This is mind-boggling, and there's a story about Reberish Meisels. He was the rabbi, the rub in Krakow and Warsaw. And in his younger years, he was the Rosh Yeshiva. And he also was a lumber merchant, a wealthy lumber merchant. It was the family business. The lumber business was they would tie their lumber in rafts and send it down the Vistula River. And most often this worked fine, but every once in a while there were natural conditions that caused loss. Well, one time the snow froze over and his logs sunk and his entire fortune was lost. And they were afraid to bake the news to him. So what they did was they had one of his students approach him. And he came with this passage in the Talmud. And he said, Rebbe, I cannot understand. How is it possible that a person should accept misfortune the same way they accept good fortune? And so he explains it. You have to have, a person has to have joy. And so he said, I still don't understand it. And he gave him a deeper explanation and a deeper explanation. He said, listen, I really cannot understand it. Does that mean that if you were to lose all of your lumber industry, if all of your rafts went down in the river, that you should be dancing with joy? And the rabbi said, yes, that's what it means. He said, okay, so then dance, because that's what happened. And the rabbi fainted. And when he woke up, he said, I do not understand the Talmud. Okay, that's the natural way for a person to respond because we are physical beings. Physical beings, this is what we relate to. We relate to visible, obvious goodness. It's one thing to understand it intellectually. It's another thing for it to resonate emotionally. On the other hand, there's the story of Reb Zusha of Anapol, Reb Zusha Anapoli, and he was a great student of the Magad of Mezrich, a very pious man, a colleague of the Alter Rebbe, and he lived a life of abject poverty, and not just that, he had a lot of illness and suffering in his personal life. One time, a colleague of his went to their teacher, the Magad of Mezrich, and he said, I have trouble understanding this passage in the Talmud. I don't understand. What does this mean? How is it possible that a person should accept misfortune the same way that they accept good fortune? And he said, for that, you have to visit my student, Reb Zusha Anapoli. So he went to stay by Reb Zusha, and he saw, indeed, the man lived in such a difficult life, and he was always happy. And he said to him, Reb Zusha, I came here because my master, the Magad of Mezrich, came to me, told me, advised me that in order to understand this passage in the Talmud, I should visit you. And he looked at him and he said, but I don't understand. I've never had a bad day in my life. And this is also one of the interpretations of Tzaddik Vitovlo. The Talmud talks about different categories of people, a tzaddik who experiences good fortune, a tzaddik who experiences misfortune. And one of the interpretations of a tzaddik who experiences good fortune is he is immune to evil. He doesn't even experience evil as evil. He experiences evil as good. And we're going to understand why it is. This is one thing to hear that a person is supposed to accept it the same way. But now the altar is going to explain why. What's the joy about? Why should somebody be joyous if they are visited by suffering and affliction, God forbid? Okay. So we are here in the text. Kigam Zula Taiva on the bottom of page three. For it too is for the good, 
except that it is not apparent and visible to mortal eyes, for it stems for the hidden spiritual world, which is higher than the revealed spiritual world, whence derives an apparent and revealed good. So this is a loaded sentence, and we're going to take it piece by piece. The first phrase over here is Gam Zulatova. Sure, a lot of people have heard this phrase before. There are two general statements in the Talmud to explain how everything Hashem does is for the good. In general, we learn that Ain nothing bad descends from on high. One expression to explain how everything Hashem does is for the good is the expression of Rabbi Akiva. Called Avid Rachamana Latav Avid. Whatever Hashem does is for the good. And then there's expression of Nachum Ishgamzu, and that is. This too is for the good. So let's look at Kalda Avid Rachamana Latav Avid. Whatever Hashem does, He does for the good, He does for the best. And this is from a story of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was once traveling and he comes to a city. He wants to take lodging for the night and nobody lets him stay over. Okay. So he says, Kalda Avid Rachamana Latav Avid. Whatever Hashem does, He does for the good. He doesn't find lodging in the city. He has to go to a field and stay over there overnight. He brings with him his candle so he can study at night. He has a rooster to wake him up in the morning, and he has his donkey. He comes to the field, and lo and behold, the wind comes and blows out his candle. And what does Rabbi Akiva say? He says, Call to Avid Rachamana, Latav Avid, whatever Hashem does, he does for the good. A cat comes and eats his rooster, and again, Rabbi Akiva says the same thing whatever Hashem does, he does for the good. A lion comes and eats his donkey, and he says the same thing. Whatever Hashem does, he does for the good. And then what happened was that night, an army comes and takes the entire city into captivity. If Rabbi Akiva would have stayed there overnight, he would have taken, been taken into captivity. And he said, didn't I tell you, whatever Hashem does, he does for the good. So in his case, what was happening, he experienced misfortune. He, he lost his donkey. He lost his rooster. He was uncomfortable overnight. But these difficult situations saved him from a worse situation of being taken into captivity. But then we have the story of Nachum Ishgamzu. Nachum Ishgamzu was called Nachum Ishgamzu, Nachum the man of Gamzu, because of an expression he always said. What did he always say? Gamzu Latova. This too is for the good. And I see questions on the chat. I'll get to them as soon as I can. Gamzu Latova, this too is for the good. Because he always said this too is for the good, he had that nickname. Gamzu, Nachomish Gamzu. So what's the story of Nachomish Gamzu? The Jewish people decided to send a gift to the Roman emperor to garner his favor. And who did they decide to send? They decided to send Nachom. They said Nachom is a man of miracles. So they fill up a chest with pearls and gems. And he goes traveling to the emperor. He stays overnight in an inn. And the residents of the inn steal everything he has in the chest. And they stuff up the chest with dirt. Nachum wakes up the next morning. And he says, Gamzu Latova, this too is for the good. And he keeps traveling. No other person that I know, at least, would continue going to the emperor with a chest full of dirt. But Nachum does. And he gets to the emperor. And he presents him with a beautiful chest. The emperor opens up the chest. And it's filled with dirt. He says, the Jews are mocking me. I'm going to kill them. And he sends them to the dungeon. Him and the Jewish emissaries. And what does Nachum say? Gam Zulatova, this too is for the good. And so Hashem says, Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Anavi, in the person of one of the ministers. And he said, come on, the Jews didn't send you dirt. This was probably the same dirt used by their forefather, Abraham. Abraham Avinu had dirt that he threw at his enemies. 
and the dirt turned into swords, the stubble turned into arrows. Try it. So he said, okay. There was one province that the Roman emperor was unable to conquer, and he sent this to the battlefield. And what do you know? It turned into swords, into arrows, and he was able to capture it. And he was so pleased with Nahomish Gamzu that he filled his treasure chest with treasures and sent him back home. On the way home, he stays at the very same inn. And they say, hey, how did you get so much honor? And he said, well, what I took from here, I brought there. They thought, wow, we have magical dirt under our inn. So they tear down their inn. They dig up the dirt. They bring wagon loads of it to the king. And they say, this is the same dirt that Nachamish Gamzi brought you, the miraculous dirt. And the king tried it, and it didn't work, and he had them all executed. So there is a difference between the way Rabbi Akiva said, Kol da'avid rachaman al-tav evid, whatever Hashem does, he does for the good. And the story of Nachamish Gamzi, that this too is for the good. In the case of Rabbi Akiva, he experienced misfortune, except his misfortune saved him from greater misfortune. In the case of Nahum Ishgamzu, things that appear to be very bad, that his chest was robbed and stuffed up with dirt instead, turned out to be good, and not just good, but even better than the original situation. And this is the expression that the Alter Rebbe uses over here. He uses the expression of Nachum Ishgamzu, Gam Zu Latova. The misfortune, the difficulties, the challenges that a person is experiencing, this itself is good. And now the Alter Rebbe is going to explain it. Shehu Vavhe Mishem Havaya Baruchu, Va'alma de Eskasya Hu Yudhe. The latter emanates from the letters Vav and He of the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter divine name composed of the letters Yud and He and Vav and He, while the former derives from the letters Yud and He. Okay, so generally speaking, Zohar speaks about two spiritual worlds, a hidden spiritual world and a revealed spiritual world. If we look at the divine name Havaya, Yud and He and Vav and He, the one that we don't mention, we don't actually pronounce. The first two letters are Yud and He. The last two letters are Vav and He. The first two letters represent Alma de Iskasia, the hidden world. In Pasach Eliyahu, Eliyahu Anavi describes Hashem as Sesimu de Chol Sesimin, hidden from all of the hidden. Hashem is so hidden that we cannot truly relate to Him. And therefore, when he sends a revelation, a manifestation, bestowal, divine beneficence from that hidden world, then it doesn't come down in a way that the created beings experience as good. If something is too much for the capacity, it feels harmful. Imagine if somebody stares at the bright sun with their eyes. Sun is good. Light is good. It helps you see. Too much light doesn't just not help you see. It actually is damaging. In this way, they're experiencing a greater level of closeness to Hashem. But the way that the person experiences it in a way that feels like damage. Because it is more than they can handle. And yet a person should realize that the where they're experiencing difficulty and hardship, Hashem has chosen to take him into his inner circle. Hashem has brought him very, very close to him. He is ex- experiencing from the hidden world not from the revealed world. Most things from this world are in the re- from the revealed world. The revealed world is from the letters Vav and He. These are the PR. This is the way to relate to people so that they feel good. 
So this is good that when a person experiences it, it feels good. But this is regular good. Then there's another level of good that's a greater level of good, but it doesn't feel good. And the account of creation, it says, a lot of times it says, Hashem saw and it was good. And then on the sixth day, it says, Vayar alikim asakasher, asa Hashem saw everything that he made. Vihine taiv me'ayit, and behold, it was very good. So there's two expressions, there's good and there's very good. And the sages speak about these two expressions. And here's one enigmatic statement from our sages. Taiv zemalachayim. Taiv me'ayid zemalach hamaves. Do you hear this? Good is the angel of life. Very good is the angel of death. We once had a guest, and this is just a... Uh, humorous statement, but we once had a guest, we were serving dessert, bakery cake, and it looked delicious with all that frosting and food coloring and all that stuff that you would never want to put in your body, and we were serving it to any of the guests who wanted, and one of the guests declined. He said, this looks very good, and very good is the angel of death. No, thank you. (laughs) But what it means is that things that we experience as good That's the angel of life. That's what we experience as good. But things that seem to be detracting from life, the angel of death, that is very good. Okay, so we hear this. And I see that there's Vav and He is the revealed world. Yud and He is the concealed world. So there's four letters in Hashem's name. The two higher letters are Yud and He. They are so holy that these two letters themselves are one of the names of Hashem. Yud and He are one of the holy names of Hashem. And then there's the lower level of Hashem's name, and that is Vav and He. And that is the revealed world. So, I'm going to look at the questions that we have on the chat for a minute. Okay, and I'm going to wait for to answer these questions to the end of class because I want to keep with the flow of class. Okay? Um, here we are. Okay, okay. This is also the meaning of the verse Happy is the man whom you, God, spelled Yud and He, chastened. Since the verse speaks of man's suffering, only the letters Yud and He are mentioned. So David HaMelech writes unto Tehillim, Happy is the man whom you, God, spelled Yud and He, chastened. This verse doesn't just teach us that the man is happy, it also teaches us why he is happy. Why is he happy? Because he experienced a revelation from Yud and He. He was taken into Hashem's inner circle. And that's why he's happy. Now we could understand why the sages said that a person should be happy with misfortune the same way he's happy with, with good fortune. And in fact, in another place in the Talmud, it says a person should be even happier with misfortune than he is with good fortune. And now we can understand why, at least intellectually. I'm not saying emotionally. Intellectually, we can understand that when a person was taken into Hashem's inner circle, Hashem chose to sow them an extra measure of closeness. And for this, they are happy. And so I want to stop over here and speak about this for a minute because this is cryptic, this is enigmatic, and a lot of times it doesn't initially resonate emotionally. So first thing is, this is a very new perspective. Why? 
Because very often a person is visited by suffering and their immediate response is that Hashem is out to get them. That Hashem is punishing them. Now, if they feel like they deserve the punishment, then they will feel it's fair. And not only will they feel that it's fair, but they will take it as a welcome thing that now they're being cleansed from the sin that they did. Hashem is cleansing them and they, f- they feel like this is the, the punishment that suits the crime. But what if this seems like a way too harsh of a punishment? Then it feels like Hashem is picking on them. Hashem is showing them suffering and misfortune. It means that Hashem doesn't like them. That's not what it means. When Hashem is showing them suffering and misfortune, it means that Hashem chose to show them an extra measure of closeness. He's revealing to this person what normally is not revealed. And yes, it hurts. And yes, it's painful. And we're physical human beings. And a person who is physical cannot feel physical things as being pleasant. Except for somebody, let's say, like Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was somebody who... The Romans raked his flesh with iron combs, putting him to death. And he said that all his life he waited for this moment. He said, when will he have the chance? His whole life he was wondering, how will he be able to serve Hashem? It says that a person should serve Hashem with all their heart, with all their soul, and all their might. When will he have the chance to serve Hashem with all his soul? And all his life he was in pain. That he couldn't serve Hashem with all his soul. And finally he took pleasure in the fact that he could serve Hashem with his soul. But this is Rabbi Akiva. Most people are not like Rabbi Akiva. And while intellectually they might appreciate it, emotionally they cannot appreciate it. But it does change the perspective. While it may not take away the pain, it does take away the anxiety and the the feeling of unfairness that accompanies the pain. Rabbi Manus Friedman gives of an example. A, a, chi- a parent gives their child an ice cream. To the child, that feels really good. Thank you, you're the best mom ever. I love you, you're great. Then the child asks the parent for the third ice cream. And mommy says, no, you cannot have a third ice cream. And now the child says, so mean, you're so mean to me. Really, the parent is showing the child goodness. They're putting the child's health at first priority. But the child can't see that. And this is just about parent and child, which is just a little bit of difference between wisdom and years. Here we're speaking about Hashem's thought. Hashem's thought is way too much for a human being to apprehend. So at least we know that when a person is undergoing suffering, it is not that Hashem is picking on them. Hashem is showing them an extra measure of closeness. Imagine a lady is sitting on a park bench. She had a long day, she needs some fresh air, she sits on the park bench by herself enjoying the breeze, and all of a sudden she gets a jab in the back. She's shocked, she jumps up, she's about to scream for help, she's in pain, and all of a sudden she sees a little cutie pie running around on a scooter, and that's who bumped into her. And so she starts laughing. She laughs because the child is so cute, what they were doing was so cute, and it was by mistake. Does that take away the pain? It doesn't take away the pain but it takes away the insult from the injury. Now now it's not insulting anymore. It's just the little cutie pie was having fun. In this case, it's not that it takes away the insult. It's that it shows an extra measure of closeness. A person understands that when they were going through suffering, Hashem was showing them an extra measure of closeness. And that's why there's something paradoxical in that 
a wicked man is allowed to suffer. When a wicked man is allowed to suffer, it's actually a gift for him. The greatest punishment, Rabbi Steinsaltz explains, the greatest punishment that a wicked man could experiencing is not him suffering, it's him stopping to suffer. And this is the interpretation behind the punishment of the serpent, the snake. When Hashem punished the snake in the Garden of Eden, he said that he's going to eat dust. Now you would think this is the greatest gift where everybody else is going to have to run around trying to find nourishment. The snake doesn't have to look anywhere to find nourishment. Dust is everywhere. Wherever he goes, he has the nourishment he needs. But if you look at it through this lens, what is God telling the snake? He's saying, I'm giving you everything you need so you will never have to turn to me. You will never have to pray to me because I never want to see you again. So while it seems like the greatest gift that he never has to pray and he never has to suffer, it's really like the termination of a relationship. And here a wicked man who is allowed to suffer is giving, given a chance to escape his circle of evil and turn around and do good. So now, we're not glorifying suffering. We're not saying that a person should ask for suffering. A person should never, ever ask for suffering. What we are speaking about is suffering that a person has, God forbid, already experienced or is currently experiencing. But when it comes to prayers, we look at the way the sages wrote the prayers. The way the sages wrote the prayers is we ask for physical bounty. We ask for good produce. We ask for peace. We only ask for good things. In fact, in Parshas Ha'azinu, when Maisha Rabbeinu is telling the Jewish people, the words of Hashem, and he's saying, I have placed before you today the good and the evil, the blessing and the curse, and you should choose life. Do you know how the Talmud Yerushalmi interprets these words, and you should choose life? You should choose life? This is a trade. You should choose life? Go get a job. Make sure that you have the physical needs taken care of. Have peace and tranquility. Have serenity. The third Chabad Rebbe, the grandson of the author of the Tanya, speaks about this. He says, what does that mean? Especially in this verse, it's talking about choosing life and it goes on to say to love God. We're speaking about spiritual service. Why is it ubachart ubachai mean physical comfort? Why is choosing life choosing physical comfort? And that's because it's very, very important to recognize what's the purpose of it all. Why did the soul come down here? The soul came down here to be in a physical world, to serve God in the physical world. If a person is experiencing suffering and hardship, then they have interference. They have disturbance. They are not able to serve Hashem properly. And this is what the Raman writes in Hilchah's Teshuvah. That a person, Hashem promises bounty and goodness for people who keep the Torah so that they will not have disturbances and interruption and they can serve Hashem properly. They'll be able to study and they'll be able to know Hashem because they don't have to be bound by material wants and desires. They do not have to go run around searching for a living. So we have to remember, is it about us or it's about Hashem? If a person thinks it's all about them, then all they want is the closeness. So they might ask for suffering. They might ask for suffering. And then, first of all, they will not have to serve Hashem because a lot of the things that they will be obligated in they will not be obligated in because they're in a state of suffering 
and they will be taken into a greater level of closeness. But that's what the Torah tells us, and this is what the Talmud Yerushalmi explained, it's your responsibility to choose life. It's your responsibility to get out of a bad situation. Don't put yourself in a difficult, hardship situation. The Jewish way is not that way. The Jewish way is seek goodness. And even when we ask Hashem to cleanse us for our sins, in the bedtime Shema, we say, we ask Hashem to cleanse us of our sin, but not through afflictions and not through sickness. So in no way are we saying that a person should ask for pain and affliction. Never, ever. A person should always ask Hashem for material bounty and material goodness. And Hashem should bless the Jewish people with only open and revealed goodness and material bounty so that we don't have to deal with all that problems and we could just serve Hashem. But if a person already experienced hardship... They should look back and not see that Hashem was out there to get them. They should realize that in the hardship that they experienced, they experienced extreme closeness. Hashem was showing them an extra measure of love. And therefore, that's why the Talmud says that a person should be happier with affliction than he is with goodness. Because he should realize that when Hashem put him through affliction, Hashem was showing him a revelation from that which cannot be revealed. Hashem was showing him a revelation from the Yudke of Hashem's name, from Alma de Iskasya, the hidden world. He was getting messages from the hidden world. He was privileged. He was taken into Hashem's inner circle. And for that level of closeness, he is happy as the man. Okay, man sees misfortune only because he cannot perceive that which derives from a higher hidden level of goodness. In truth, however, the misfortunes are actually blessings in disguise. On the contrary, they represent an even higher level of goodness than revealed good since they originate in a higher world. So let's wrap up what we said until now. We said that a person who is visited by physical misfortune should really take the advice of the sages. The sages advise that a person who experiences suffering should be joyful about it. Why should they be joyful about it? Because they were taken into Hashem's inner circle. They were shown an extra measure of Hashem's closeness. We understand that a person, of course, should never ask for misfortune. It's just that if God forbid a person already experienced misfortune, they should know that Hashem showed them an extra measure of closeness. So we're learning all of this so we can understand how to get sadness out of the way. Sadness is toxic, is to be avoided at all costs. It sounds very easy intellectually, but practically speaking, it could be very difficult. And a chassid of the third Chabad rabbi that Samach Tzedek wrote to him, and he said he has a very hard time feeling joy. What's his advice? And the Samach Tzedek said to him that our thought, speech, and action profoundly affect our soul. And therefore, a person should make sure to always think happy thoughts. He should be careful from speaking negative or dispirited things. And he should behave in a joyful manner. And when he thinks, speaks, and acts in a happy manner, it will actually affect his inner being and he will feel happiness. And this is proved by science today. I don't know how many people heard about the pencil in the mouth experiment where they had people hold a pencil in the mouth. They didn't even realize that they were smiling and holding a smile on the face affected the way they were feeling. So subjects who were then put through physical uh, discomfort and they also had a difficult, challenging mental task, they recovered more quickly afterwards when they were holding a smile on their face. So 
fake it till you make it is actually a true line. And that is that even if you don't feel happy, act happy. You're feel, having a sad thought in your head, get it out of your head. Not now, push it away. You want to speak about bad things? Don't speak about that bad things. Speak only about happy things. Even the way you behave should be happy behavior and that is going to affect how you feel. Now I see about um, expand, ex- explaining this to children. Children cannot be explained every detail of what we learned today. As a parent, you know how to best suit this to your child. But one thing is, we should teach our child when they think about sad things to turn their mind away and to think about happy things. Because actually, the way our brain works is the more we think about a certain thing, the more we're prone to think about a certain thing. I saw this really great example in Sarah Khan Radcliffe's book about Amazon. So you open up Amazon and it says, hello, Catherine. What can we interest you today? Would you like some more books on law? And you say, wait, how in the world does Amazon know that I like to read books on law? The way Amazon knows that you like to read books on law is because you keep buying books on law. And so it says, oh, Catherine's interested in law. So let's present her more books on law. That's the way our brain works. When you train your brain to, be, to think happy things, then your brain gets trained. Oh. Catherine likes to think about happy things. I know you don't mind me mentioning your name. (laughs) So therefore, it keeps offering Catherine happy things to think about. On the other hand, somebody who chooses to think sad thoughts, their brain gets trained in negativity and then will keep offering them sad thoughts to think. So to move out of negativity is difficult because their brain is already trained, but it doesn't take that long to rewire the brain. So every time a person is thinking about negative things, they say, no, no. Time for a rewire, and they force their mind to think about happy things, and with enough training, the mind automatically starts turning towards happy things. The Rebbe once said, if our bringing quoted about how much happiness is a gift and how it brings more happiness, and he quoted from a student of the Chayza of Lublin, Reb Shimon of Yaroslav, and he said like this, you know the famous Shir HaMalos we say in Benching, a song of ascents. And to Helen, there are some chapters that start with Shir HaMalot, a song of ascents. So one of them is chapter 126, and it's a song of ascents. When God returned the returnees of Zion, we were like dreamers. And then it speaks about how happy we were. And it says, Az Then the nations will say, Higdil Hashem la'asos im Eila. Hashem has done great things with these. The nations of the world are going to wonder. Hashem has done such great things with you. Why did he do such great things for you? And we're going to answer. Hayinu Semechem. It says in that chapter of Tehillim. We were happy. Do you know why God did such good things for us? Because Hayinu Semechem. We were happy. So happiness is a gift. And it brings more reasons to be happy. So we'll wrap up what we said until now. And we're opening up for questions that happiness is a must. We spoke about how to deal with physical difficulty. And while most people are not on the level to actually experiencing the joy, they should at least know that intellectually it warrants joy. It means Hashem showed them an extra measure of closeness. And we have to be happy next week. Actually, next week there's no class because it's the week of Shavuot. So the week after... We will have class, Bezrat Hashem, and we will deal with sadness that comes from spiritual concerns. I'm opening up now for question or discussion. I see some beautiful new faces here today. Anybody who I don't have their information, if you'd like to send it to me, 
so that I can remind you about class. I'm sure you got my information from a contact, so you can give that information to the contact. We'll share information and we can be in touch. Anybody has any questions today? Okay, regarding Tefilos, if a person's in a lawsuit, for example, should you only pay for a play for pray for a peaceful solution? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's only if a person already experienced hardship, they should know that Hashem had shown them an extra measure of closeness. But when it comes for the future, the way to pray is only goodness that we physical beings experience as good. Hashem is infinite. So he could even show us the greatest level of closeness and we could still experience it as good. So when we pray, we only pray for open and revealed goodness. And again, Hashem should bless the Jewish people with the best of health and happiness, whatever they need in children, health, wealth, whatever they need in only a way of open and revealed goodness. If a person feels emotional hardship, they should get out of their state of emotional hardship. So that why do we want this, all of this out of the way? So that we could serve Him. All of these things are problems. We don't need problems because we need to serve Hashem. Our mission is serve Hashem. When a person is running right around trying to make ends meet, when they're running around fighting people with lawsuits, then they're distracted. It sucks up their energy. It's taking the energy from where it needs to be. Where does our energy need to be? Our energy needs to be to serve Hashem. So we're saying, Hashem, listen, we want only open and revealed goodness because we need this energy to serve you. We need to take the physical. We need to turn it into spiritual. We don't want to deal with all these distracting stuff. So we know it means an extra level of closeness. There are stories in the Talmud. There are stories of the Talmud of sages who were suffering affliction. They were sick. And then they were, then they were visited by their fellow sage. And they said to him, you know that Yisurin's sufferings are, are cleansing. Sufferings are an extra measure of closeness. Sufferings are a reward. And they would say, I don't want them and I don't want their reward. And he said, okay, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand and he helped him out of bed and he felt fine. So these were great sages who said, I don't want them and I don't want their reward. Because ultimately, and this seems like backwards thinking, but it's not about us. It's about Hashem. And Hashem sent us here to turn this world, this physical world, into a spiritual world that, not spiritual as in not physical, but spiritual in a world that announces His presence. In order to do that, we need our full energy. We can't be drained by physical and emotional hardships. So we say, Hashem, please solve these problems for us so we can give it our all when we serve you. Any other questions? I know there were questions on the chat. Nobody's muted on purpose, so you can just unmute yourself. Here, I unmuted you. Oh, here we go. Regina, question. So, is it fair to say that maybe in the past, historically, we've all had such, such difficulty as a people, battles, just annihilation of cities and everything. Is it fair to say that that was extra closeness with the people of those times? A hundred percent. Look, look at the Jewish people. They suffered. Yeah, look at the Jewish people. They suffered for 210 years before they even had a Torah and mitzvot. It clearly wasn't from sin. It was for another reason. Before the inception of the Jewish people, Avram Avinu was told that they were going to suffer. For what reason? It couldn't have been from sin. It had to be because Hashem was showing them an extra measure of closeness. But even when they suffered from sin, there is something really crazy here, okay? The Talmud says that if not for the sins of our forefathers, all we would have had is the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua. 
because of the sins of our forefathers, the prophets that had to go and warn them and prophecy. And so we have all the other books of Tanakh. If not for their sins, we wouldn't have had everything we had today. And Rabbi Steinsalz compares this to the paradox in the misbehaving child getting more attention than the child who behaves well. He said, we should be grateful for the sins of our forefathers because of them, we have all those other books of Tanakh. So there's a lot of uh, interesting, intriguing ideas going on over here. Cheryl, you're quiet today. Meital, I'm just grateful that you came on with your real name. I had a, I had a question. Yes, Catherine. Um, so um, we were mentioning earlier that we should be thankful for even and uh, hardship. How do we thank God if someone, for example, has like cancer or some, um, you know, horrible health issue? What blessing do you, what is the benefit? You know what I mean? What, what, how are you going to be thankful to God when you have that kind or like if a family, I know family member, she lost uh, a daughter, a very young daughter, and she just said, God doesn't exist. So how do you convince her that? Uh, no, there is God, and you should be thankful for that. I mean, you know what I mean? Right. So emotionally, it's very, very difficult. I couldn't just sit here and give you a straight-out answer, but what I could say is that intellectually, a person should know that, yes, when they are experiencing even a very difficult sickness, they should know that God is showing them an extra measure of closeness. God took them into their inner circle. And God forbid, even with loss of life, how terrible and tragic... God still showed them an extra measure of closeness. It, it's, it's difficult. Like, how do we explain that? Not just that, but even from, e- even when a person, when they lost a relative, God forbid, for them it's hardship, but at the same time, they feel a certain level of joy. And this is a crazy thing to say, but I'm saying it because it's not my own words. Knowing that the soul came down here to fulfill a mission. Before the soul came down, it was at a limited level of closeness to Hashem. And once it left, the soul is now at a greater level of closeness, having escaped the physical confines, and it is closer to Hashem than it was before it came down. So the soul is experiencing joy. And while the person who is close to the person and experiences profound pain and terrible loss, and halacha mandates that they need to mourn, At the same time, they should be cognizant of the fact that that relative is in a place that's closer to Hashem, that the relative is experiencing joy, and that's also why halacha mandates that they should not be excessive mourning, and that excessive mourning causes hardship, because excessive mourning is also taking it to the flip side, not acknowledging Hashem and not feeling the joy of the relative. So it's easy for me to say, but of course these are emotionally very difficult to be assimilated, but that's the truth of the matter, that even in those difficulties, Hashem showed them extreme closeness. And when a person is suffering terrible illness, they should pray to be healed. Of course they should pray to be healed, but what they do experience at that time is a level of greater closeness. But then say, look Hashem, they cannot understand this deep language. They just want to be spoken to in a commoner's language, and the commoner's language is only open and revealed goodness.
Okay, do I see any other questions? I have a question. Okay, yes, Cheryl. Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. So, okay, so just from your own personal experience, because you just unfortunately had the loss of your brother, were you able to put yourself in that place? So, of course, that's a very difficult question, and um, it was very, very painful. I, my heart was wrenched. My heart was wrenched. At the same time, during that time when we were sitting Shiva for my brother, and believe it or not, this Sunday is 11 months since he passed away and his, his children are going to finish saying Kaddish. My father was in the Shiva. He was singing in a sad tune, but he was singing, Thank Hashem for his good and his kindness is forever. And he said Hashem is good and he only shows us kindness. So, you know, I get the chills still as I speak about that. And... And even then, when I found out the news, my brother came to tell me the news. We were both, I can't tell you how, you know, our hearts were wrenched. It was so sudden. And our brother that we loved dearly, my so close to me, part of my heart, the closeness that we shared. And at the same time, he looked at me and he said, Rachla, Tzamach is happy. And that was important for us to, even though we've experienced profound pain, it was important for us to be cognizant that we feel pain, but he is happy. He lived a life that was totally aligned with Hashem. He lived a life of kindness beyond what most people can share with others because of that kind of nature that he was. And we knew at that time that he was happy. Did we feel happy? Of course we felt very, very sad. Of course, you know, we're human beings. But at the same time, there's the cognizance that, that he is happy and that for whatever reason, Hashem chose to show his kindness in that way. You know, I'm just a simple person and the pain was excruciating. But the, the cognizance, yes, we knew. We knew that this was a message from Hashem in a different way that people don't experience as, as good and that my brother is experiencing closeness. So I bless all of us that nobody should experience that kind of pain and that Hashem should only show goodness in an open and revealed way that we experience as good and He should show us His kindness from the highest levels and we should experience that only as good. It should be only good in a way of you know, physical goodness that we experience as, as joy. Amen, amen. 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 With the coming of Mashiach, yes, together, yes, Amen. And we're gonna we're gonna next class we're gonna speak about how that when Mashiach comes, we're, anybody who experienced suffering, how they'll experience the goodness that was within it, and that will be next class as well as we move on to the sources of spiritual sadness and how to deal with that. You know, I, I have to say, like just having been there at the shiva and all, and even watching you. The morning process. I mean, it was really inspiring to, I mean, you know, I think, you, like you said, you can't help but be sad, but, um, you know, just to see the, like, check, trying to move forward in such a positive way. So, uh, I, I, even have... like the, the, his, his kids, his kids giving out dollars on the, that slow sheen thing to put dollars on every chair for charity. I mean, it was really, really, it was so striking. Yeah. But as I say, we pray for only open and revealed goodness. 
And again, I know that my brother is in a place of true closeness and for his happiness, I'm happy. But of course we can't help but miss him. We're physical creatures and his family him and misses him. And I know he's pulling big things. 